This is Talkin' Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talkin' Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Blacktail Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. Hey, it's Jody Stemmler. We're back talking Mule Deer from the 2019 Western Hunting and Conservation Expo. And I'm Steve Belinda, Jody's co-host, and we're talking. We're going to be talking some local stuff right now. We have the Utah guys with us. We've got uh, Darren West, who's the the Mule Deer Foundation's volunteer habitat conservation coordinator. We've got Kobe Jones, who's the big game manager uh, coordinator for the state of Utah. Welcome, Welcome gentlemen. Hey, thanks, thanks. Cool. So tell us a little bit. Obviously, uh, Darren, you and I met about seven or eight years ago, maybe even a little bit more than that, through a Hero for a Day project because you guys, uh, the Mule Deer Foundation was doing a, a restoration project on a wildlife management area and you helped lead that. This was before you actually got the title of volunteer. So you've now continued to carry that and expand these projects. Tell us a little bit more about your role with the Utah chapters. So each of the Utah chapters, they'll generate a a fund called their chapter rewards fund through their local banquets and it's it's a phenomenal program because we're able to take that money working across the state with each of these individual chapters and take that money and put it back in the ground in these local chapters right where the people the sportsman dollars were raised so it's really motivating and it keeps me going to think that we're taking the money putting it back in the ground um, we're taking this this land and the money that we're raising and we're actually hoping to increase the carrying capacity on these ranges with these types of habitat projects and hopefully increase our carrying capacity on our deer herds. So um, let me interrupt for just a second because chapter words obviously is not just a Utah thing. All of the no. Mule Deer Foundation chapters, if they raise money at banquets or secondary events, the money that they raise, a portion of that is able to go back to, to local projects. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Every one of the banquets and each individual chapter, state, and nationwide. Okay. Well, and, and let me just jump in here um, before you start, Kobe. Uh, carrying capacity for those of those folks that aren't biologists out there, that's the amount of animals that a piece of land can withstand and maintain itself through time. So. It, exactly, yeah, without without habitat damage, right? right. And in, in Utah, we've been really fortunate to, to try to, you know, think about it as like a bucket. You know, if you have a five-gallon bucket, you're only going to fit five gallons of water in it. Right, you're never going to fit six gallons of water in a five-gallon bucket. And what we've right. decided with deer is we want more deer, so we need a six-gallon bucket. And the the best way to do that is to create more deer habitat on the landscape. You know, Darren, Darren and I met almost almost ten years ago as well. And really interesting, um, we we've got a big initiative in Utah, the Watershed Restoration Initiative. Okay. And what we do is we take a, a few million dollars seed money, and then we match and leverage and leverage and leverage. Until we end up around some years $35 million. Um, well, where's that Where's that money come from? Is that other state money? Is that private money? Is it federal money? Or is it all of the above? Yeah, the answer to that is yes. It's, it's all of the above. And we're lucky enough to do that. But then we leverage it even again with Mule Deer Foundation. Because what we say is, okay, we want to put in guzzlers in this area. We want to do this habitat project. And then we go to Darren and we say, we want to do this project. If we pay for materials... Can you help us get the labor? Or could you use local chapter funds to help pay for materials? So, I mean, we're just always able to leverage that and get more done with what we have coming in. It, it's a, it well, really it sounds like a great model. And, yeah. it, and it's worked for y'all because you have increased deer. We ab- Absolutely. In the last 10 years, 
Um, we've grown about 100,000 deer in the state of Utah. Uh, we are sitting. Populations have increased po by. Populations, it. yeah. And, and, and we've had some rough weather, uh, uh, more severe winter in 2016, followed by a severe drought in 2017. And we've seen that taper off a little bit. But overall, we have more resilient populations because of the habitat work. It would have been a lot worse 10 years ago. And so you guys have actually gone into urban areas and done stuff, too. This isn't just out on the rangeland and on the forest land. You've actually tried to address it statewide, Absolutely. even out in the deserts, too. So. Yeah. so tell me, we've talked a little bit about the Watershed Restoration Initiative, but tell us a little bit more about some of the types of work that you're trying to do, how you're trying to create new habitat or better habitat. Perfect. Um, I mentioned a little bit about the funding before, but the way the Watershed Restoration Initiative works is anybody can submit a project. Darren, you, me, anybody could submit a project. It's divided up into the five regions where they rank the projects to say which are the best and which fit in our focus areas. The division created focus areas to say we want to focus here, here, because this is where mule deer winter, where they summer, where we need the work. And after a project submitted and ranked, um, if it's one of the projects that ranks high that year, we're able to get it done. And So who does the ranking? Is that just the department or is it a, a group of folks? It's a local working group made up of various constituents. So it's not just the division or the, 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 that does that. It, it's So you're it, getting stakeholder involvement. Stake, for, yeah, so. Absolutely. And that's key. I mean, because part of this is getting the, the federal government and the land management agencies involved. And through that stakeholder group, we're able to do that. Um, and that's where a lot of the funding comes from. And Mule Deer Foundation chapters and, and staff are involved in that a lot, right, Darren? Uh, yeah, actually, I was lucky enough or fortunate enough, I guess, to be uh, recognized to serve on that board this year. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be a really exciting new chapter to kind of look at some of these rules that have been in place by the previous uh, the board and see what kind of changes we can make with some fresh minds and some fresh thoughts to maybe rewrite or add or take away some things from this program to, you know, most beneficially spend that money and use our deer in the most effective ways. Yeah. Very cool. So we have, I, if I'm not mistaken, I just want to go, we were talking about funding sources. The Hunt Expo has the 200 tags um, that, that we sell. So there's $5 and people can come and they can put in for a, for a, a, a drawing and potentially get. Those are state of Utah tags. State right? of Utah yeah. tags. That is the source of funding for this, isn't it? Oh, is absolutely. That's a big yeah, part of this. It's, it's a big part of this, as well as the conservation permits that are sold at the banquets. Um, and, and we're able to allocate that funding. And then what it really comes down to is on-the-ground actions. Right. So it really comes down to a chain on the ground, removing pin juniper, revitalizing sagebrush, um, a fire to revitalize summer range and increase productivity or, of a herd. And, and these are the types of things that we're funding. We're funding fires and chainings and uh, a bull hog, which is a machine that goes and uh, it basically eats the trees. Masticator. And, a masticator, yeah, <laughs> and, and creates yeah, Every time I see that, habitat. I picture a beaver. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Duluth training uh, commercial yeah. or something. Um, but Darren, you, you gave us a number earlier. Am I not mistaken that it was over a million dollars that the Mule Deer Foundation? Uh, we're actually nine hundred dollars short. I don't want to see, say that in oh. a negative way. Oh man, <laughs> we're nine. You better go hit miles up. Go gas for a check. So. We were actually <laughs> able to turn around and through the WRI program, put back in one point four nine 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 million dollars wow. into uh, study migration patterns, habitat work this year. Th in in, the in past one year. year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. That's and incredible. So we hope to increase that this year and with through the uh, sale of expo permits and uh, 
that through the show here is where we'll generate a lot of that and then we'll turn around at WRI with our partners with the division and we'll uh, the cool thing about WRI is we'll, it, we'll be able to look over those ranked projects that Kobe was speaking about and from a mule deer uh, perspective we'll be able to kind of go through and pick and choose certain projects that we think will where the money will be most beneficial and used to its its best capacity and uh, that's that's really cool but yeah it's, it's close to 1.5 million dollars so what those of you who since this is an audio podcast can't picture is that darren is sitting here kind of austin powers like with his pinky to his <laughs> mouth saying one million dollars <laughs> well and behind him we've had the uh, project the 2018 project accomplishments and you know every time utah comes around you see that number flash up there and uh it's a great accomplishment now Kobe, you said new information i know there's been a lot of research coming out of Utah State, BYU, you know, what are you finding that you didn't think you knew? I mean, as biologists, we always think yeah. we know something, but as soon as we study something, we find out we Don't didn't know, know a lot <laughs> more <laughs> than we knew. You find out all you so. didn't know. Yeah, and, and the truth is we've had several partners in this, so I thank all of them, but a big shout-out to two division guys especially, and that's Kent Hersey and Daniel Olson. You know, Kent really got this started several years ago, doing body condition on deer and getting collars out there, and what we've learned is that we, we've, we've learned that we, we can start to establish what a carrying capacity is for deer. And then through cause-specific mortality, we can find out what we need to do to increase that carrying capacity. So every, every deer right now, we put out 800 collars in December, 800 deer collars. We've got about 1,100 collars online uh, for deer right now. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. I mean, west-wide, I, I challenge anybody to have out the numbers that we have out. Yeah. But um, 1,100 deer collars, and every time there's, uh, w when we capture, we get um, body condition on every deer. And so we know what, what they're coming into winter like. And then So when you, when you say body condition, you're talking about fat content, how physically fit they are. A absolutely. So then we can look at uh, population metrics and say, okay, this population is, 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 is not fat. And if it's not fat, it's not probably going to have healthy fawns, and they have less of a chance of surviving and so we need to address those issues or can you correlate that back to the summer range that they were on to see the condition of it with the gps collars yeah. that's what's amazing is now we can so now wow. we can go back and look at habitat use and say this animal is not fat because of this or this population is struggling and here's the summer range they use we need to focus there you know so instead of using you know for a long time biologists used the range as a metric of deer health and we've turned that around, and now we're using deer as a metric of deer health. It's, it's crazy. What a crazy thought. Yeah. And Darren, are you focusing on that information comes in? It's precise information. Are you then focusing your habitat projects in those areas that show they need it the most? Uh, yeah, with the, with the partnership with the, we have with the division, it's, it's a really good tool we have because they can give us recommendations. Mm -hmm. A lot of the times I'll go to the state biologists and ask them through the data they're getting from these, these monitoring programs and take that information and have them propose projects to me. And we can kind of specifically put that into areas where, say, deer are suffering from lower fat conditions throughout the summer. We can put some more water up there on the summer range to help the fawn health and to help those does kind of recover from the fawning season. Uh, we put in a lot of guzzlers every year across the state on those transitional level fawning grounds to kind of help those does and fawns through that. And I, I believe the earlier you can start to help these deer from the second they drop the fawns, 
to rebuild that fat. And like Kofi was saying, they can build all that up on the summer range. And then as they transition back down to the winter range, they'll be in better health. Right. Yeah. Do so. you, are you seeing a bump in volunteers and enthusiasm because of this symbiotic relationship we have with the state and new information and being more effective with the dollars you're putting back out on the ground? Absolutely. The, that's the greatest thing about this. I'm, I'm obviously biased because I run the conservation habitat program. But without the volunteers, or volunteers are the lifeblood. Yeah. I, they, this thing wouldn't come full circle if we didn't have them. And that's probably my favorite thing about it is we're getting people more involved. We're getting them outside. We're able to get them kind of educated in, in what we're doing and what we're trying to do and what we're trying to provide for the future. Not just for ourselves, not present day, but for their kids, their grandkids. And with that education, we can also teach them about how these lands are used and how not to damage the habitat and be better stewards of the land and take care of it. And so that's, that's probably the most rewarding part of it is being to educate youth, adults, on this, how we're, how we're actually performing these projects, how they're beneficial, and how we can preserve them. Now, something you alluded to earlier, Kobe, is that um, when you have a lot of dollars and you have grant programs, they require matching funds but yeah. it doesn't have to be dollars it can be in kind and that's what you what is so valuable about the volunteer aspect and the increase of the percent the number of people that are participating in these programs that adds to the in-kind value so having more volunteers gets more done on the ground helps with the in-kind adds to in-kind and it can be direct match we can use their hours as direct match to get more monies you know that is the unique thing about mule deer foundation um a lot of groups earn money. A lot of groups um, spend money. But Mule Deer Foundation is the only group that consistently comes out and does the work on the ground, it, I, in, in my experience, in Utah. Well, you know, we, we know how passionate Mule Deer lovers are. Not that other uh, groups don't have the same passion, but it seems to be the folks that when they're on Mule Deer, they're, they're yeah. going that extra mile. So. so a year ago at the expo here, we had uh, Secretarial Order... 3362 Big Guy Migration uh, Corridor and Winter Range uh, Conservation Order from Secretary Zinke. And I know Utah's been um, a part of implementing that order. Kobe, can you fill us in on where you guys have gone with that and, and what you're seeing or where you're going with that? So. A absolutely. Um, because of that, we were able to, to add more to what we're already doing. Um, you know, one of the things we haven't looked at in Utah very closely before in the past is pronghorn. We were able to get out a lot of pronghorn callers this year, map their corridors. We're, we're well into mapping a migration in southern Utah on the Ponsagant, which is one of, it's a world premier mule deer unit. Now seeing what habitat is important to them and then directing uh, UDOT and our other partners to say, hey, we're losing a lot of deer in these areas because these, these are super important corridors. They need to make that winter to summer migration. Uh, and also to where to place crossing structures and fencing. It's for it's, roads, highway. Yeah, You're talking for, about highway mortality. Exactly. Right when I say Utah, I think everybody knows Utah Department of Transportation. Well, not everybody's listening here from Utah. So. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, we've already been able to identify areas where we have concerns or need to protect, and and are starting to work with our partners to make sure that they're they're. Well, intact. if I remember right, you're also putting collars on buck deer. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's yeah. something that's unique. Yeah. In the in the the scientific collaring world, tell us you know what you're trying to find there, and you know um, 
there's a lot of folks that may say, well, you know, you can maybe then go find that big buck. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if I, you knew the if you knew the GPS uh, signal, but you know, really tell us why that's going on and what's unique about that. So. Perfect. So, Steve, first of all, in Utah, we hold that data pretty close to the vest. We we don't share GPS yeah. locations, and that's why, because we don't want to mix management with with hunting. Although we do care about our hunters, and we want to support them. We're not going to give that out. Right. Um, another. I guess this, the the second part of your question is why do we call her bucks? And it's because we need to get all the migrations, and and bucks and does don't always migrate together or use the same routes or use the same same habitats or stopovers, and they're both important. So uh, we we have we've gone and we've collared bucks in addition to does to see how they're using the landscape and if that differs. Uh, in some areas, it it absolutely does. And you also have, I mean, you guys are are like a couple other states where your public land is the higher elevation, yeah. private land is lower elevation. Are you getting any pushback or support from private landowners? Because those animals are using both. They don't care about yeah. boundaries. So. But mostly support, absolutely. In fact, this uh, in Utah we have a, a, a partnership with private landowners uh, called the Cooperative Wildlife Management Units, and they contributed money this year as, as a partner to the Migration Initiative, saying... You know, we want to partner in this. We want to see how they're using these landscapes and how we how we help. So private landowners have been very receptive. Very cool. Hey, Utahns love mule deer. Yeah. You know, private landowners. Well, they love big mule deer, too. And <laughs> you guys have, have been growing yeah. some pretty big ones. Yeah. Uh, at least from looking around at some of the mounts and, and some of the pictures that are out there uh, on the Internet. So uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you're doing a great job. Where we, you know, you know this from your interaction with the mule deer working group. Most, a lot of mule deer aren't doing well. We're seeing a downward trend, but Utah seems to be bucking that uh, in a lot of their herds. So Yeah, La- last couple of years have been tough, but yeah, overall, we have healthy mule deer herds. Yeah. So, Darren, there were a lot of fires in Utah this year. Um, very small, some, some very big and intense fires that I know you're going to be doing some restoration. Tell us a little bit about your plans for the coming year. Yeah, so it's going to be a really busy summer. We unfortunately had uh, the Pole Creek and Coal Hollow fires down near <clears throat> Spanish Fork Canyon that actually burned together and merged. And I believe the numbers on that were they burned around 130,000 acres. Um, unfortunately, in that amount of acreage that was lost, the biologist shared with me that we lost significant amount of acreage of critical winter range on five different wildlife management areas or WMAs. So the efforts to enhance the habitat on those or basically rebuild it is going to be a huge project. We've got one that I'm calling right now, just kind of calling it the mega project, where we're going to have five chapters involved throughout the state. Um, We're going to be installing four guzzlers, planting over 15,000 shrubs. Um, We're going to be seeding over 400 acres or as much as we can get to. We're looking at probably two to 300 volunteers for two days. Wow. Um, just to put a dent in this. It'll probably be several phases of this throughout the year. But that's going to be the start in, in March. We're going to start on that. And it's going to be a huge project. I mean, as volunteers, we're going to do as much as they, we can and hopefully make a big impact on it or at least kind of kickstart that to where that wildlife will start to use it and we can rebuild the winter range there well and that's it, important because burned areas um if you don't go back and revegetate relatively quickly you've got a huge invasives issue right is yeah that, yeah they'll, that'll be another part of the project too is controlling the invasive weed species yeah. as we it's basically a restart on this yeah. i mean mother nature will do what she'll do but we're just kind of gonna 
give her a hand. Give right. it a jump start. And Kobe, will you have collared deer in these burned areas to see how they're using the, the rehabilitated areas? Or I mean, we do have collared deer in those areas. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how they how they use the landscape and how they adapt. Um, yeah, because we you know it's uh, it's interesting how quickly animals will respond to a properly rehabilitated landscape. Yeah, and what we've run into in a lot of places, and you're probably no different in, in Utah, is you got to keep those invasive species from coming in, um, and but you have to hold the soil somehow. So um, it's a challenge, and you know d you know shrubs take years, if not decades, to come back, but. Um, we need to have that uh, the, that winter range and that habitat out there to support your numbers, and it's you know it sounds like you've got a great partnership and plan going here, and you know we hope that you're successful, Darren, and, and I know that the MDF volunteers and chapters are going to be giving you everything they got to try to make it successful. So, well, thank you guys so much for all you've done for Mule Deer for the work you're doing. I, again, Darren, you and I met a long time ago, and I was impressed then, and I'm even more impressed now that I see so much going on in Kobe. It's a pleasure to meet you as well. Thank you for talking Mule Deer with us. This is Jody Stemler. And I'm Steve Belinda, and thank you for talking Mule Deer. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thanks for talking Mule Deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talkin' Mule Deer.